Keane is Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin with a particular interest in memory. Veronica talks to Michael Barclay about the relationship between music and memories. One of the things that's always struck me over more than 20 years of private passions is the very strong connection between music and memory. As people choose music which takes them way back, vividly evoking pivotal moments in their lives. It can be deeply emotional. My guest today, Veronica O'Keen, is perfectly placed to unravel that connection between music and memory. As a practising psychiatrist, 
She spent many years observing how memory and experience are interwoven, working with patients whose memories are often broken or disrupted through brain tumours or mental illness. She's Professor of Psychiatry and Consultant Psychiatrist at Trinity College Dublin and the author of The Rag and Bone Shop, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. And she's talking to me today from Dublin, near her home in Hoth. Fascinating subject, Veronica, and so much to talk about today. It's interesting that music as an abstract art form, in other words, we bring to it our own personality in hearing it, bypasses to a certain extent our rational mind to release memory. That's correct, and I think... All art is like that. It it basically connects uh, different centres of our brain, particularly the emotional centre in our brain, which is called the insulin, where we contain our emotional memories. And these emotional memories are grown into the auditory cortex or the hearing cortex so that when we hear something, there is an immediate neural pathway to the insula and that triggers emotions in our body. So in that sense, the whatever sensation is coming into our body is directly triggering emotions without having to pass through all the other circuitry that would be involved in conscious thought. Of course, it can go to conscious thought as well, whereby we can manipulate it in our imagination. But primarily it is, as with all the arts, as with visual arts, music is an emotional Experience. I'm glad you've used that word imagination because the next piece is, in fact, imagine, isn't it? That's correct. And this piece actually brings back a snapshot memory for me of when I was about 13 or 14. I was in the kitchen and I was drying the dishes and my mother was facing towards the garden. I remember it very vividly. And this song came on the radio and spoke very much to me as a child who was transitioning from a world of strict Roman Catholicism into a more imaginative, personalised world in which those sort of structures didn't exist. And I think Imagine is very much about an idealistic view of the world. But for me, it particularly spoke to me because imagine there is no heaven. I always imagined there wasn't a hell, but the idea of imagining there was no there was no heaven, there was no religion, there was nothing to die for, there was only um, the, the living of life. And it was at the same time that I discovered science. So rather than religion providing an answer to everything. I was learning that life was far more complex. I was learning about the natural world. So I I was moving from creationism really to evolution and from a divine explanation of things to a very human one. And I think this was the beginning of material atheism for me, which is eventually what I came to in terms of my philosophy and way of seeing the world. Imagine there's no heaven 
John Lennon and Imagine from 1971. I wonder whether you agree with me, Veronica, that perhaps various, a confluence, if you like, of memories are at work there, because the fact that he was assassinated makes that whole song even more moving to us. We imagine what might have happened if he hadn't been assassinated, or or does that not occur to you? Absolutely. There is always a lingering tragedy about this beautiful mind that was, you know, shot down um, prematurely. So, yes, I think our our memories merge in a way, uh, certainly, and I see this in myself with my children. When I see them now as adults, I've got a series of, of memories that are tied up with that. I see them as children. I will always see my adult children as infants, as children, as adolescents, and now as adults. It's a sense of as you said, congealed memories and all the emotion associated with that. In the next music, Beethoven, there's a continuation in one sense of creativity and tragedy because it's always uh, an extraordinary thought that Beethoven was so deaf when he wrote works like the Missa Solemnis. That's correct, and it's absolutely fascinating from the point of view of understanding memory and the potential of the human brain to transcend the sensory world. The science behind that is fascinating as well, because basically what he was doing was he was using his musical memory to create new tunes. So the musical memory that was in his hearing cortex was being brought to the front of the brain and shuffled around in a part of the brain that we call the prefrontal cortex, which I would often liken to a conductor in an orchestra who, um, <laughs> who who merges everything and brings it together in a way that doesn't exist in sensation, in a way that can only exist in the way our brains put things together, each in our own unique way. And Beethoven demonstrates this beautifully, how we memorise um, information and we can memorize it in such a masterful and intricate way. And then our prefrontal cortex can play this out in our imagination. It's tender as well as being solemn. And the other thing I, I feel about uh, this music and about church music in general is we celebrate huge things, particularly death in churches. So I often think about the death of my father and very significant deaths in my life when I um, when I hear this piece. Even atheists join in that corporate need for uh, ritual, the communal need. Absolutely. As I've said, I, I myself am a material atheist, but there is the solemn sense of ritual that, that I haven't found a replacement for, I have to say, outside of religion and particularly church music, which I find particularly moving.
The Sanctus from Beethoven's Missa Solemnis with Carlo Maria Giulini conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra and New Philharmonia Chorus. The soloists were Robert Tier, Heather Harper, Janet Baker and Hans Sortin in that 1975 recording, which actually was recommended in the piece's latest appearance on Radio 3's Building a Library. I don't know about tomorrow I just live from day to day I don't borrow from its sunshine for the sky Oh, 
written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear his thoughts on Psalm 42. It's followed by The Watermill by Ronald Binge, with Ruth Scott on the oboe and the New London Orchestra, conducted by Ronald Corp. A response to Psalm 42. You are my heart's desire from first to last. Like as the heart desires the water brooks, so longs my soul towards you. So I thirst for living streams, not for the dusty books they write about you, nor the empty words that ring from pulpits, nor the haughty looks of those who market you. These are the shards of broken idols. 
I long for the deep in you that calls the deep in me, the chords that sound those depths and summon me to weep at first with tears of grief and then with tears of joy, that I may sow those tears and reap a timeless harvest, that the ripened ears of grain may shine as clean and clear as gold, shucked of the husk of all my wasted years.
Ian Rose of Soundwaves Radio in Sussex shares some of his programmes with us. Today we hear Ian talk to Gaynor Cooper about the Fair Trade Organisation. Recently when shopping, I've become more aware of a two-coloured logo appearing on products. Well, I've been joined by Gaynor Cooper, who knows all about that little Fair Trade logo. Fair Trade in um, the UK is part of the International Fair Trade Labelling Organisation that runs in 19 countries. And what that does is it runs an accredited and monitored scheme to ensure that farmers in the third world or producers in the third world get a reasonable price for their products. And on top of that, they get an extra social premium, which they as a community can decide to invest in the way that they choose, such as they may decide that the most important for them thing for them is a road so that they can um, transport their goods out. Or it may be a school or it may be water, it may be health care. That's up to them to choose. It's not something that is decided by the Fair Trade Organisation. It's very much about empowering farmers and producers to have control over their own lives in the way they want by ensuring that they get a decent living wage for their work. So can any organisation be branded with the Fair Trade mark? Well, there are criteria that they have to meet. Um, generally, they have to be. There, a lot of them are very small farmers, and they have to be part of a cooperative. They have to be working together. They um, have to provide um, equal rights for the women and and the men within the organisation. So it can be very empowering in some parts of the world. They have to follow certain codes, like there are environmental codes. Um, and um, so, so it is a process, and it's all inspected. So if a, a group of farmers want to become a fair trade organisation, it's something that they would apply to do internationally, and then they would get advice and help um, to to enable them to do that. And and the range of types of producers that are doing that is growing and growing. And, of course, the Fair Trade Organisation internationally is always looking for areas where there is extreme poverty, but there is a market for the goods that are produced in the developed world so that um, they can set up schemes so that more and more people can benefit. Um, at the moment, 7 million farmers worldwide do benefit from the scheme, it could be an enormous amount more. It really depends on people in the um, developed world buying the goods and, and saying that, that they want to ensure that there is fairness in um, the goods that they buy and, and that the farmers are not being exploited. Am I correct in saying that it's only the raw material of the product that actually comes within the fair trademark? It, it can vary. Quite often it is the raw material that is then sold on and processed um, often in the developed world. And, and that is one of the ways that um, actually um, historically we have kept um, the developing world poor by ensuring that, that we buy their products and then we do the cash-rich um, processing. But more and more uh, they 
try to help organisations get involved in their own processing. So, for example, if you were to take a company like Capua Coco in, in Ghana, they're actually, they own um, a sizable proportion of the shares of, of Capua Coco, which is one of the largest chocolate producers of fair trade chocolate. And they are now, I think becoming involved in the processing of it or setting up processing there in Africa. So it is something, fair trade is very much about trying to change the way trading is done so that it becomes um, not so unequal, not such an unlevel playing field, but more that people can compete in in, in terms of um, what they're capable of doing. The fact that fair trade has managed to get consumers to say, but that's not fair, and to actually buy fair trade has made a huge difference because you're starting to get companies saying, well, to keep up our market share, we have to actually have fair trade products. So you get large companies maybe only producing one token fair trade product at the moment, um, but they've had to acknowledge at least that fair trade is something that does affect the consumer. And the more and more people buy it, the bigger and bigger message we're sending. And really, for me, the purpose is to use fair trade to send the message about trade justice and eventually to have a system where we don't need fair trade because everything is fairly traded and we wouldn't dream of exploiting our brothers and sisters in the third world just because we can bully them because we have the money and the power. You have shown us, oh God, what is good You have shown us, oh Lord, what you require You have heard all our songs and how we long to worship you Yet you taught us the offering you desire To do justly
Let the river of your justice flow through us. Let your river flow. Let your river flow. Let the river of justice flow through us. You said to do justly. Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his shorter God Spots, and today he has one on critics. You did it again, didn't you? Don't do that! I've told you before, you're an idiot! Aren't you? Repeat after me, I'm an idiot! What are you? Well, if you actually answered that, you probably are. See, today, I'll bet somebody is going to criticise you. For real. I can assure you that actors, pop stars, writers all know one thing. And that is, you should never pay attention to a critic. After all, let's face it, no one ever put up a statue to a critic, did they? There's only one opinion that matters. And that's God's. So, the $64,000 question is, what does he think of you? Do you really believe me when I say that he absolutely loves you? Well, if you do, tell that to your critics. Toodaloo the do. The love of God is greater far than thunder. Right, I dream. 
wait until some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to shed your light afar. To the many duties ever near you now be true. Brighten the corner Someone far from harbor, you may guide across the bar. 